Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Cool fact: A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. The FT. Looking for a cheap remortgage? Why it pays to go off the beaten track? Saving for university fees? Why you'll need to take on a degree of risk? And planning a new life overseas? Why more and more Brits are keen to go the extra mile? All this to come on this week's FT Money Show. I'm Matthew Vincent. I'll be giving you the lowdown on all of these money matters in downloadable form with my colleagues from FT Money, Alice Ross. Hello. And Tanya Poli. Hi. And our special studio guest, Annabel Brody-Smith, Communications Director of the Association of Investment Companies. Hello. So let's start, as usual, with this week's money news. On Monday, data from financial information provider MoneyFacts reveals the last place to go for a best-buy mortgage rate is the busy high street of a major town or city. Although the UK's largest lenders, the Halifaxes, Abbeys, Barclays, NatWests and HSBCs of this world, now account for three-quarters of the UK mortgage market, they only provide 29% of the 500 best-value mortgages. If you really want the best deals, you have to seek out some lesser-known names, such as the Hanley Economic, Monmouthshire, Leak United and Loughborough Building Societies. They're just a handful of the smaller lenders offering cheaper fixed rates than their larger bank counterparts. And it seems that they're able to do this by sticking to their old-fashioned values, lending money from their own savers' deposits rather than playing the money markets. So, Tanya, how much better are some of these small society deals? Well, actually, at the moment, um, the small societies are offering, well, they're actually offering the best buyers in nearly all of the fixed-rate markets. So for two-year, three-year and five-year fixed rates, they're actually the best rates available at the moment. They tend to um, hog even both the first and second best rates um, positions, so they're much, much better than um, the, what the banks are providing at the moment. And I mentioned some of those names, which which you know, might not be you know the, the most familiar uh, to our listeners. These are these are sort of small local based societies, is that right? Yeah, a lot of them are. Um, that's I think that's one of the things that people need to look out for. Actually, if they are local societies, some of them only will operate in their local area and only lend on these cheap rates to those people who live in that area. So that's one of the things you do need to watch out for. But yeah, there are some quite unusual names. I mean, obviously, there's Hanny Economic, which is quite a small one, um, Leak United, which you mentioned as well and obviously we've got um barnsley building society as well that's doing one of the good kind of five-year fixed rates at the moment so it's really kind of if you if you want to do your own research you really need to look at some of the tables like money fats and actually see which lenders are offering the best rates and you know you will find quite a few of these building societies out there at the moment and what sort of differentials are we talking about in terms of rates is it is it quite a, a yawning yeah, gap between... well i mean everyone's being fairly competitive at the moment so you're still kind of getting it's probably going to be a few basis points difference but you know that often makes all the difference for a borrower and we'll just, just take the example of uh, i don't know how about a five-year fix yeah well at the moment um one of the examples that a broker has given me we've got barnsley building society with a fix of 4.69 percent for five years and that's for a 75 percent loan to value 
And um, he kind of gives the example of Halifax, um, which also will lend up to 1 million as the same as Barnsley. And they're actually providing a, a five-year fix at 5.35%. I mean, we have kind of shown the difference of, I mean, I don't think Halifax is the most competitive one in the market, but I mean, it shows how you can get some appalling rates from the banks and actually the smaller building societies are the ones stepping up to the plate. So there is a there's a gap between best and yeah. and worst quite quite clearly. Um, I was interested that you mentioned that the the maximum loan is mm. the same because sometimes you might think that a smaller society might not be able to lend as much. No, I mean most of them will typically tend to play in the smaller loan size um, market, but you do have a few players. I mean Yorkshire Building Society will often go up to a, quite a high loan amount. Obviously, like I mentioned, Barnsley Building Society. So it's really just looking at those details. Um, typically, building societies do play in the, the low loan size as well as kind of the higher loan to value. They seem to be doing much more for first-time buyers, trying to be a bit more innovative with their products with kind of guarantor schemes. And obviously, as we discussed last week, teaming up with house builders to offer higher loan-to-value products. So um, that's where they seem to be most competitive. But they are, they're still quite competitive at their kind of you know, 70%, 75% value, which is where the banks like to think that's where they dominate. And there is a suggestion that um, it's, the, it's the good old traditional sort of virtues of the small building society that are making this possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, is that the, the only factor or are they also looking to try and get a bit of market share back? I think they're looking to get a bit of market share back. And as well, we've also got to point out that um, building societies tend to have quite small tranches. So while the big banks might not be the most competitive with their rates, they do have bigger um, tranches of funding available. So they're often likely to be able to write a lot more mortgages at a slightly less competitive rate. While maybe only, you know, handful of borrowers or like hundreds of borrowers will actually be able to access those competitive rates from the building societies so even though they're they're good rates at the moment they might have to sort of withdraw those pull those rates away quite quickly because they obviously don't have that huge tranche available so if you if you live in or around loughborough or any mm-hmm. other of these uh, uh, smaller societies catchment areas i suppose the, the message is to to move fast Thanks very much for that, Tanya. And for details of those best and worst buy mortgages, um, and also details of some mortgage refunds for Halifax customers, look out for Tanya's articles in the money section of this weekend's FT and on our website at ft.com forward slash money. Still to come on the show, why overseas property buyers are looking down under, even though costs are on the up. First, though, university fees. At the end of last year, and in spite of waves of protest, the House of Commons voted through the government's plan to raise the cap on university tuition fees to £9,000 a year. And since then, universities have not been slow to raise the price of a mortarboard. In recent weeks, Oxford, Cambridge and Imperial College London have all suggested that they will charge the new maximum. In fact, the only university to categorically state that it will not charge the full £9,000 a year is Liverpool Hope, which made an announcement earlier this week. All of which leaves parents with a dilemma. Do you buy higher-risk investments to boost your child's college fund to the required level, or do you just buy a super-saver ticket to Liverpool Lime Street with a young person's rail card? Alice, this is a lot of money that uh, parents are going to have to find if they don't want their children to be saddled with enormous debts on graduation. Um, What sort of options do they have to get their fund growing faster? Well, of those two options you mentioned, I think I'm expecting our readers to opt for the first option and potentially put away some money into some kind of regular savings scheme to do that. Um, The general advice will be that if you are saving for a long time, if, say, you're saving right now when your child is born, you've got 18 years at least to find that money. And we're talking possible lump sum of 36 grand here if, you know, if they do want to go to one of these universities charging 
9,000 a year and if they're taking a four-year course. Um, so, uh, so the general advice then, if you're saving for the long term, is to go into equities. But the good news is uh, that it might not have to be that much that you put aside every month to meet this. And Annabelle, you guys have done some research into this, haven't you, of how much you actually need to put aside to meet this kind of commitment? Absolutely. We've recently run the figures. And what we found is that if you put in £50 a month over 18 years, which is quite a manageable amount, you'd actually have, on average, in the average investment company, £23,000. Now, obviously, that's going to vary between which sector and how much risk you're willing to accept. So, for example, emerging markets have done particularly well recently in the last couple of years. If you'd invested in the global emerging markets £50 a month over the last 18 years, you would have £44,000. But maybe you would not want to take quite so much risk and you'd go for perhaps the global growth sector, which are big globally invested companies, and you'd again have just around £23,000. And so if you are saving in, say, 50 to to £100 a month to meet this commitment, um, that doesn't have to necessarily come out of the parents' pockets, does it? Because parents have so many other pressures on them and, you know, obviously they're still working and things like that. Increasingly, I think you've said that we're seeing grandparents that are actually making these savings for the children. Absolutely. We have actually done some research and looked at who is meeting the burden of these university expenses. No surprise that the poor old parents, about a quarter of them, are the main source of university funding for their, for their children. Um, but interestingly, grandparents, about one-eighth of grandparents are contributing to university costs. So the burden is falling on the whole family, I'm afraid. Mm. And are we expecting to gra- grandparents to step up a little bit more now that, you know, there is this huge increased burden on families? I think it's very likely. Um, it, if we looked at last year, the average debt of the student graduating was £21,000, wow. already an mm. enormous amount. Mm. And obviously now with the increase in tuition fees, that's going to be going up quite a lot. So I think it is very likely that the whole family is going to be burdened with the costs. And obviously students are going to be graduating with a lot of debt. Mm. And what about um, if you do pick, say, an investment trust and you decide to go for global growth or emerging market equities, you have to bear in mind, don't you, that you're saving for a fixed um, date. So as you get closer to that date, you may want to come out of the stock market. You may want to move into less risky assets. Absolutely. What you're going to do is obviously you're going to need to monitor quite carefully how your investment is doing. Um, And if it has had a particularly good run, and as you get closer to needing that money, closer to your university days for your child, you might well want to consider moving into maybe cash, fixed interests, less risky types of investment because you don't want to be met by some stock market volatility which would have a real impact on your investment. Mm. And what about, what is the government doing to help this whole process? Because they scrapped the Child Trust Fund uh, last year so so that's all gone, that you know nice £250 voucher you might have had from the government to help you save. Um, are they doing anything to help to help this process along with you? I have to say I know about this personally because my first child did receive a child trust fund of £250 and my second child has now only received £50. They are introducing junior ISAs. It's going to be a similar concept to child trust fund. Um, Unfortunately, we don't actually have any details on it yet, but we are hoping to receive them in the budget because this will be a very tax-efficient way uh, for parents and families to save for their children. Although, unlike the Child Trust Fund, we're not expecting any 
money from the government, are we? We're most definitely not expecting any money from the government. Unfortunately, the government hasn't got much money to give away at the moment. <laughs> so we'll have to do it ourselves. Thank you very much, Annabelle. Yes, thanks, uh, Annabelle and uh, Alison. For more on the investments that can help you to meet the cost of university fees, look out for Alice's feature in the money section of this weekend's FT and on the website at ft.com forward slash money. And finally today, overseas property. Where do you think Britons are now searching for homes in ever greater numbers? Not Spain, not France, Ireland or Italy, or indeed any of the economically challenged European nations. According to the property website Rightmove and foreign exchange broker MoneyCorp, it seems that fears over inflation and job losses are now encouraging many people to consider emigrating further afield. They've seen a 55% increase in people searching for overseas property with a surge of interest in the Antipodes. So, Tanya, which particular locations are now topping the charts? Well, it seems that Australia's right up there. They've seen um, more than a double um, increase in interest um, in January alone. And following that, we've got New Zealand and Canada. So these are all kind of obviously the English-speaking countries where people obviously tend to emigrate to. And obviously, I guess with the January blues, as you mentioned, people are looking to those summer climates like Australia and New Zealand. Right Move and Money Corp have actually provided this table of the top 10 climates. And in that top 10, the majority of them are like locations within Australia and New Zealand. So we've got places like South Australia and, and Canterbury in New Zealand, Victoria in Australia again, the South Island in New Zealand. So they do seem to be dominating really what people are looking for at the moment in, in January. And I was particularly uh, sort of uh, taken with the fact that uh, I think it was it was right move, perhaps Money Corp as well, saying that uh, concerns over job losses, not just in mm-hmm. the UK, but that the Eurozone mm-hmm. may be um, encouraging people to look to these countries. I yep. suppose not having a language barrier might make employment that much easier. Do you think that's a factor? I think that's that's probably a big factor, actually. Um, I mean, obviously, we know Australia and New Zealand are very um, sort of the common places that people do emigrate to. Um, I think it just makes it a lot more easy to set up. I mean, I did it myself for just one year. I moved to Australia and it was very easy to kind of, you know, sort of go over there and you could kind of almost straight away, like, land a job. And I think you're probably going to see a lot of people, like you say, with all these money problems and the fact that we don't have actually much, um, you know, we've got quite a big unemployment at the moment. And we are seeing Australia booming. Um, so it's kind of very attractive on all fronts, really. And it is worth pointing out, again, that... Um, Places like Australia and New Zealand, the dollar over there is actually very strong against the UK pound, so the UK sterling. Um, so really you need to factor in the costs because I think it's going to be quite expensive still to buy a property over there compared to two years ago. Exactly, because uh, as you said, you, mm. you worked over there yep. uh, for a while and then I think you were, you were back, back only recently. It was much more expensive. <laughs> yeah, it was terrifying actually how much you are paying out for food um, and you know, obviously accommodation and everyday expenses really. I actually asked Money Corp to provide some figures for me about how much it would actually cost to buy a property in Australia comp- like now compared to two years ago. And they're saying buying a house in Australia worth about $250,000 would cost about, about £43,000 more today than it would have done two years ago. And that's the same, a similar amount also with Canada. So you really need to kind of think about um, whether it's worthwhile um, potentially sort of timing the, your move appropriately and maybe when the costs come down. Yes, exactly, or, or, or perhaps rent, renting for a yeah. period. So with these costs now being 
much higher, that's obviously going to limit the ability of that many people to look at Australia. Um, are there other locations that uh, are still you know, as popular, more popular? Yeah, funnily enough, even though Australia and New Zealand were amongst the biggest risers of people actually searching for um, properties over there, um, it still remains those kind of traditional second home destinations that are still topping the table. So we still got people, um, Spain, France, USA, Portugal, Italy, tend to um, be the kind of most popular places for people to actually move abroad. It's just the fact that in, in January we saw Australia and New Zealand climb quite massively. Um, so... I was speaking to a few mortgage brokers this week and they were saying that really they're being inundated by requests for mortgages for France because um, last was the end of last year, um, mortgage rates were kind of hit a historic low in France. I mean, we have seen them increasing recently, but they're still comparatively low um, compared to UK rates. And also with the euro still strong against um, uh, the pound, it's worthwhile actually borrowing in um, euros. And um, when and perhaps like then sort of re- repaying some of that mortgage debts when Dalian becomes strong again. So it's it's currency as much as climate mm-hmm. that should uh, determine where you look for your property. Thanks very much for that, uh, Tanya. And for a full rundown of those top ten risers and fallers in the overseas property search charts, you can read Tanya's article in the money section of this weekend's FT, and again on the website at ft.com forward slash money. That's all for this week's FT Money Show. Remember, you'll find weekday news updates and all of these stories on the website. And if you have a question that you'd like us to answer about any aspect of your finances, just email us. The address is money at ft.com. Next week, we'll bring you another financial lowdown in downloadable form. But until then, it's goodbye from me and it's goodbye from Tanya, Alice and our special guest, Annabel Brody-Smith of the Association of Investment Companies. Goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. 